Stir in our Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 9. We go back to Isaiah, the often from certain sections called the gospel according to Isaiah. He speaks much about the coming of the Messiah, the suffering servant. We looked at chapter 7 previously, chapter 9 Uh, this week to give us an idea of what these verses say about the coming of the Messiah. We've already seen the the birth being foretold and that he would be born of a virgin and we've looked at that immediate historic context there and that uh, prophecy was some 700 years before Christ would be born. And if you remember, Ahaz the king is in, is in big trouble. He's sided with the uh, worship of the uh, god Moloch and, and the Amalekites and, and they've, they've um, sorry, the Ammonites and they've uh, created this uh, uh, idol with a furnace in the bottom and they're sacrificing their children uh, to this pagan god Moloch in hopes that he would bring blessing upon them. Uh, Ahaz has locked the door of the temple and barred valid uh, worship, the real worship, and where there is no real worship, there will be false worship. And Isaiah comes into this picture with words to him and says, um, you know, the Lord's going to deliver you. Don't, don't get worked up. And, and he says, ask the Lord for a sign, any sign that you want. And, and remember, Ahaz goes, well, you know, I wouldn't test the Lord. And then Isaiah says, well, the Lord's going to give you a sign. And he talks about the birth of this child by a virgin. So that is the immediate context that we're dealing with here in the book of Isaiah. And the context hasn't really changed yet. Uh, Isaiah is still talking to the king and these things are still going on. The nation is still at risk. Ahaz does not trust his security, let alone the security of the nation, to the God who has protected them for generations. He would rather trust in the Assyrians and Tiglath-Pileshar III. And, and try to get in his good graces, but we'll see in a moment that that is uh, folly. So before we go any further, let's pray, and then I'll read the word of God. Heavenly Father, come upon us today as we read your word, as it fills our hearts and minds. Let the Spirit come and give us understanding that we might see clearly what it says, that we might see clearly how it applies these 2,700 years ago, how it applies 2,000 years ago with the birth of Christ, and how it applies today, how we should live out this glorious word from you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And I'll just uh, begin in chapter 9, verse 1. I'll just read a little bit till we get an idea of, of exactly what we're talking about here. So Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times, He treated the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Thou shalt multiply the nation. Thou shalt increase their gladness. They will be glad in the presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou shalt break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, 
and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness, from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You'll notice that no man will accomplish this thing. No man will put another man on the throne and the increase of his government will have no end. It is purely and succinctly a work of the Lord. His zeal and his love for us will accomplish this. This is God's inspired word for us today. Now, as I said, the nation is still at risk. Isaiah is still talking to Ahaz. Ahaz is not really listening to him. The sign has already been prophesied that it will come. And and just as as an aside here, this prophecy here in chapter 9, although it's not translated as such uh, for our reading, but this prophecy and many other prophecies that are in the Old Testament are written in the past tense as if they have already occurred. So he is, Isaiah often will prophesy and he will speak it as if it has already happened. So that instills within the hearts of those who hear it this sense of surety, this sense of security, this sense that the Lord has said it will happen as if it has already taken place. We see that in Romans chapter 8 as well. In the passage where it says we've been uh, those who he's predestined, he's called, those he called, he's uh, justified, those he's justified, he is glorified. We know that glorification for the believer does not happen until death, until the return of Christ. But he speaks as if that has already taken place because he wants to instill within our hearts this real sense that the Lord accomplishes this. Don't worry about it. It is done as... um, I don't know, who was it in the 70s TV show, Beretta? Maybe you can take that to the bank. Is that who said that? Okay. You know, not Only people who are all a certain age know that. Okay. All right. Well, the situation in chapter 9 is bad. So the prophet speaks to those who see only distress, who see only gloom. They see only darkness. Let's look at these first, uh, this first verse in particular here. He treated the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now to understand what he's talking about here, we have to go back to 2 Kings. We're not going to turn back there, but it's 2 Kings 15. And that is the the, uh, narrative of when the Assyrians come into this geographical reason region of Zebulon and Naphtali, and they are the first to fall to the invasion of the Assyrians. Now, it is not uncommon for the Lord to use pagan nations to bring judgment upon his people. He uses them on a regular basis, and often he will let them judge his people by destruction and by dispersing them, and then he will bring judgment upon them for invading his people. This is the way the Lord works, okay? But what happened is this is chronologically, it's a little before, that that takes place a little bit before this prophecy here. So when Isaiah mentions those two names, Naphtali and Zebulon, everybody knows what he is talking about, okay? Everybody knows. Now what is really interesting here and really cool prophetically is here at the end of verse 1. Later on he shall make it glorious, He will treat the land with contempt. He will bring judgment because 
frankly, Zebulon and Naphtali were not the greatest moral lights of the area. Okay? They had fallen into paganness. They had fallen into idolatry. The Lord brings judgment upon them. So he brings them judgment and contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So Naphtali and Zebulon, geographically speaking, are up around the Sea of Galilee. Now we know who shows up around that area in about 700 years from now. The Son of God. Jesus, he spends a lot of time in that area. And you have to understand that area in Jesus' time, and it's stated here, the, the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. It was surrounded by Gentile nations. And there was a lot of Gentile influence in that northern area around the Sea of Galilee. So the Jews really hated those people. They didn't want to spend any time with them up there. But Jesus goes up and spends a great deal of time doing ministry up there and presenting the gospel of the kingdom. And so here we have this judgment upon these people. But later the Lord says, I'm going to make it glorious. How did he make it glorious? By the presence of Jesus Christ there. Okay, that was one of the first places where the gospel was presented. Nobody ever thought the Messiah would spend any time in Galilee, but yet he does. So this prophecy is fulfilled some 700 years later with the presence of Christ preaching in and around the Sea of Galilee. Now come down to verse 4 here. For thou shalt break the yoke of their burden, the staff of their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. Now, remember, these people have no hope. They're very, it's darkness, it's gloom, and the prophet Isaiah is bringing hope. Yes, the hope will come years later, but the hope is here. Now, there's extra credit if you can figure out that last phrase, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. Who, who was the victor at the battle of Midian? Oh, okay. Gideon. Midian, Gideon. That's how I remember. Okay, Gideon. You remember what happened? The Lord says, go off and fight the Midianites. And, and, and Gideon says, oh, come on. Give me a sign. And he gets a sign. He says, give me another sign. So he gets another sign. So he gets all the guys together, all the warriors. And they go off. And, and the Lord says, you got too many. He says, what do you mean? We're going to go fight tens of thousands. What do you mean we have too many? He says, get rid of some. So he says, everybody who's afraid, go home. Let me think for a moment. <laughs> I'm going to fight an, at overwhelming odds. Am I afraid? Yeah. Well, well, most of them go home. And then they stop to drink. And the Lord says, well, you still have too many. So everybody who goes down and puts their face in the water, send them home. Everybody who bends one knee and brings it up as if they're looking for the enemy, keep them. He's got 300 guys left. And you can just... Now, Gideon has received a sign from the Lord. In fact, he's gotten two signs from the Lord. So you'd think at least in his heart, he knows the Lord has given them the victory. How it's going to happen, he doesn't have a clue. So he sends all these people home. He's got 300 left. And you know the story. Gideon is victorious. Okay? Basically, they circle the camp at night. They throw out lanterns and, and blow horns. And the Midianites end up killing themselves. And then they come in and clean up the rest. Okay? So he is saying, he is, he is in a sense reminding them of the great victory that was won through Gideon. And he says that type of victory will be won again. 
And they're thinking, well, when? When are you going to overthrow the Assyrians? And, and, and the Lord says, but it's going to be won by the one to come, the one who's prophesied in chapter 7, verse 14, who will be born of a virgin. That is the one who will bring victory for my people. Okay, so now we get into this last section here in verse 6. Shakespeare, those of you who are Shakespeare lovers, wrote in Romeo and Juliet, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. Now remember the context of that, if you can remember back to your high school Shakespeare. Romeo and Juliet come from different families, Montague's and... Thank you. There were a lot of you remember. Thank you. Okay. And, and they're bitter enemies. And these two have fallen in love. And, you know, Romeo goes, well, you know, I don't care about a name. I'll, I'll give up my name just for you. Well, names are very important. Okay. And, and you know, teenage starstruck boyfriend and girlfriend might be willing to give up their names. But names carry a lot of weight in them. And we see that in Scripture. Remember, we, we said that Isaiah's children were named particularly for a purpose. Uh, as the names of um, uh, Hosea's children were named specifically for a purpose so that they would demonstrate the things of God, and God would use them. Uh, Ichabod. Ichabod means the glory has departed, okay? So that was very clear. A child was named that to demonstrate that the Lord had said, you're on your own. I'm going away for a while. So names are very important. An aptronym... I'll tell you, I, I looked hard for that word. Uh, my spell check does not have aptronym in it. Okay? An aptronym is when someone's name and occupation line up perfectly. Okay? So I have a few here. Jules Angst. He was a German professor of psychiatry, and he published works on anxiety. Angst, anxiety. Sarah Blizzard and Amy Fries are both meteorologists. Okay? They only, they only forecast the weather in the winter, okay, apparently. Russell Brain, neurologist. Margaret Court, tennis player. Very good, okay. Um, Bob Flowerdew, he's a gardener. Bill Medley, righteous, righteous Brothers, okay. He's a singer. Alto Reed, saxophone player. Lake Speed and Scott Speed. Race car drivers, okay? Well, I figured somebody would know the race car drivers, okay? Marina Stepanova. A hurdler. Stepanova. <laughs> a Russian hurdler, okay? Now, it's interesting, but it doesn't compare. These are, these are all real Randy Jenkins. That, uh, that doesn't go anywhere, okay? Um, but these names are cool, but they don't quite line up in the way that the names that we have here in verses 6 and 7 line up. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now, do the names line up perfectly with the, in a sense, the profession of Christ, the occupation of Christ, his purpose? His purpose is wonderful, and and we're going to look at these names in just a second. He is the mighty God. He just doesn't come proclaiming the things of the mighty God. He is the mighty God. He is the eternal Father. He and the Father are the same substance. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the one who brings a peace that passes all understanding. No one else in the world 
has this peace except those who have the presence of Christ in their life. So first, let's look at wonderful counselor. Now, the word wonderful uh, has, has connotations to miraculous, which pretty much describes who Jesus is. He is miraculous. His birth is miraculous. His coming into this world, his entire life is miraculous. He does these powerful works, these miracles that no one else can do. His, his greatest miracle, overcoming death. He now sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will return. He is wonderful. He is miraculous. But there is also this other word, counselor. Counselor. The reason for this is that he is the, as I said, same substance as the Father. He emanates from the Father. The Spirit emanates from the Father and the Son in affairs of all things, in the wise counsels that happened before our creation, The Heavenly Father and the Son and the Spirit came to an agreement that this is how the plan of history would work out. That Christ would come and give his life as atonement for the sin of those who belong to the Father. These were the plans. These were the counsels that would go on. So let's apply this in our life. Today we search for wisdom. We search for answers. We like to find the meaning of life. We want solutions to our problems. We go to a variety of places. We go to psychologists and psychiatrists. We go to counselors, we read books on self-help and try to fix ourselves. We try everything. Sometimes knowingly and unknowingly, people will pursue things that are demonic for counsel. As we said, uh, horoscopes, Ouija boards, uh, readers, palm readers, all those types of things. But they never find the real longing of their hearts until they look at the one counselor who has the answer that they seek. Now, I'm not discounting the the purpose of psychologists and psychiatrists. They certainly have their work, and it's appropriate. But we understand the longing of our hearts can only be satisfied by the wonderful counselor, and that is Jesus Christ. He knows all about us. When you come to him with your problems and with your issues and with the burdens of your heart, he already knows them, and he is ready to receive you, ready to forgive you, ready to give you that peace that passes all understanding. He gives wise counsel. He's not like Satan. He never lies. He never deceives. It is straightforward. Sometimes we don't like the counsel that we get from Jesus. Sometimes we read in his word and we see these hard things. We say, I I don't particularly like to read those passages. But yet that is what he calls us to do, how he calls us to live, how we are to structure our lives and our hearts and the pattern of how we live. It is then that we find this peace that passes all understanding when we have given everything over to Christ. So he is the wonderful counselor. Next, he is the mighty God. Hmm. We don't always like that, to think of Jesus as the mighty God. And that word El uh, in in the Hebrew is there. So that, that designates power and authority. It's used 213 times in the Old Testament to talk about the powerfulness and the strength of our Heavenly Father. He not only counsels us with complete knowledge and perfect will, but he also acts on our behalf. That's like going to a counselor, and he, a secular counselor. He might give you great ideas, great insight, but he can't empower you to act and to order the world to achieve those things. Jesus Christ can because he is the mighty God. So many people like to leave Jesus in the manger because we get the warm fuzzy. I mean, there he is. We've got the... Uh, uh, the angels and the wise men and Joseph and Mary and all the animals around in the, in the scene, and we think that's great. But remember, that's the Savior of the world, and when he comes next time, he is the judge of the world. 
He is the Savior now. He will come next as the judge. His power is beyond any power that we can comprehend. All that power is moved on behalf of those who belong to him. Over and over again, God shows his mighty power on our behalf. He demonstrated it when he delivered the Hebrew slaves in the Exodus. He, you know, Pharaoh was the strongest power in the world at that time. The Lord crushed him again and again with the ten plagues. He showed his power when Abraham and Sarah said, You've got to be kidding me. We can't have a baby at this age. And they did. He showed his mighty hand and his power when he took the shepherd boy, the smallest of the children of Jesse, and said, you'll be king. And that king did powerful things and wonderful things for the work of the Lord. He showed his power when he came upon Saul, who was the great enemy of the church, and took him and changed him completely and made him into Paul, who was the great missionary for the things of Christ. Charles Spurgeon wrote, We know also that Christ proved himself to be the mighty God from the fact that all the sins of all his people were gathered upon his shoulders, and he bare them in his own body on the tree. Pain of the crucifixion was secondary. It was, you know, we think it was a terrible death, but in reality it was hardly worth mentioning. The pain and the suffering that came upon Christ was because of our sin. All of our sin rested upon him. One who had no sin. He did, I, you know, I, I'm trying to get my mind around these, these concepts that are, that are just far beyond us, but he had no sin. We had it all. He took it upon himself. Was that the first time he ever really understood sin? Well, he was God, but yet he was man. But the weight of all our sin bore upon Christ. All the sin of all the people who were his. He took all our griefs. He carried all our sorrows. He put the sins of his people to a public execution. Those sins are dead. They have ceased to be. And if they be sought for, they shall not be found anymore forever. Certainly, if this be true, he is the mighty God indeed. Charles Spurgeon. Those sins are gone. They are as far as the east is from the west. For those who have confessed their sin and sought forgiveness from Jesus Christ. Third, he is the everlasting father. Literally, the father of eternity. The infant is the infant. The little child is the parent for all time. Now, in the ancient Near East, when somebody was known for something in particular, he was given that name. Like if somebody was really smart, he would be called the father of wisdom. Abner Doubleday is the father of baseball, something like that, okay? Here is the everlasting Father, the one who has all power, the one who has all knowledge. He says, I give them eternal life, and what happens? They never perish, because he's the eternal Father. Not only does he have the ability, but he has the power to guarantee that they will never perish. And lastly, finally, the Prince of Peace. He is the one who will accomplish peace. He is the one who will give peace. He is the one who will reign in peace. And so in this description, Isaiah tells us about the light who will dispel the darkness. The Gospel of John is very clear about that. The people love the darkness. Jesus Christ brings the light. They hate the light. C.S. Lewis wrote, How can we entertain this thought? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And he also says, I am meek and humble. 
claims from the same person, but there is no protest. In Jesus, the confluence of these incongruities is not grotesque, but it is seamless. It is convincing, it is satisfying, and it is real. There is one way of the Father, and that's Jesus. But he says, yet I am meek and I am humble. Behold the infant deity in Bethlehem. The incarnation is too sublime, too beyond the range of human imagining to be invented. By man he is uncontrived. As God, he is uncreated. We celebrate the historical event at Christmas, the words of C.S. Lewis. The word of the Father is now in flesh appearing. O come, let us adore him, for he is the admirable conjunction of both power and humility. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can, we can barely imagine these things. Our human mind would not put these things together, this ultimate power and ultimate humility, the one who by whom all things were created, by him and through him, yet he comes into this world to bear our sin. He comes into this world as a child. No fanfare, no big deal, just a few people know about his birth in an out-of-a-way place. Yet this is how you chose, in your perfect plan, to reveal your glory to us, that we might know the wonderfulness of Jesus Christ, that we might know the forgiveness that is found only in him. Lord, today, remind us that thousands of years before he was prophesied to come. Isaiah the prophet said, this is what to look for. A virgin shall conceive. And you shall call his name Emmanuel. And his name is also the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, the Prince of Peace. And Lord, for us today, he's the one that brings a peace that the world doesn't understand. They search for it, they search for it in a variety of ways, and they come up empty. You alone provide what our hearts long for, what we were created for. Fix these things in our hearts, Lord, that we might not search anywhere else, but that we have found them in Christ now we will seek to fill our hearts and minds with his word. We ask these things in his name. Amen.